book of Matthew, chapter number 12 today. Last week, we introduced this chapter. If you're looking for the book of Matthew, um, you're looking about two-thirds of the way through your Bible. It's the first book of what we would call the New Testament. And it's one of um, four books that we call the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are all stories about Jesus and about who Jesus is. Stories about his life here on the earth. This is where we would find the Christmas story, both in Matthew and in Luke. This is where we find the stories of Jesus' miracles, the works that he did while he was here on the earth, his teachings, um, all the way up to his crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection at the end of each of these books. And so we find these books as being a uh, significant source, if not the primary source of our understanding of Jesus Christ and who he is. And so these are kind of the central books of the Bible. So what we've been doing over the last several weeks is we We've been going through the book of Matthew, the first of these gospels, and saying, who does Matthew say that Jesus is? Who does Matthew, what does Matthew tell us about Jesus? Who does Matthew believe Jesus to be? And we have been going through this and breaking it down chapter by chapter, segment by segment. And so this brings us to Matthew chapter number 12. And as we come into Matthew chapter number 12, we're really going to begin at verse number 15. And this verse, this passage connects immediately to the things we talked about last week. Last week, some significant things took place that we were talking about. As Jesus declared himself to be the Lord of the Sabbath, um, he let his disciples um, in the eyes of the Pharisees violate the Sabbath, um, which is the holy day of the Jewish week. And then uh, we see that he even went as far as to heal a man on the Sabbath. How dare he, right? How dare he do good on a day that God designed for people to worship him and do good. Uh, that's what he did. So, so what we find is we find that Jesus, he, he does these things on the Sabbath day. And, and what's the response of the religious leaders? What do the religious leaders want to do as Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath day? Do they say, wow, Jesus, that was incredible. This is a day I will never forget. What do they do? They wanted to kill him. They wanted to destroy him. They wanted to tear him down, tear down his reputation, and speak ill of him. And ultimately, we know that this kill is not, it's destroy. It's not just metaphorical, but literally bring it into his life. And so watch where we're going now in verse number 15. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This is an interesting theme that goes on throughout the book of Matthew. We often refer to this as the messianic secret, where he says, hey, don't tell everybody the things that you saw. Um, a little paradoxical, but nonetheless, what Jesus does. Um, but as we step into this passage, as we continue to really get into the meat of the text here, there's a question that I believe that the rest of this chapter is posing for us today. And so this is the question that I want us to keep in the back of our minds, the question that I want us to kind of hang on to as we go into this text. And the question is this, who can Jesus save? Who can Jesus save? And so what we're going to find is we're going to find people that are on opposite ends of the spectrum. We're going to find the broken, the hurt, the lowly, and we're going to find the uh, well-to-do, the aristocratic, the religious, the righteous. And who can Jesus save? Who can Jesus save? And so Matthew sets up this tension beautifully. Before he even gets into this, he lays the groundwork by going back to the Old Testament. 
And what he does is this. He quotes here. He says, Jesus did all of these things, and this is why it happened. Verse 17. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. So actually, in the Gospels of Jesus, this is the longest quotation that we have out of the Old Testament. And it's coming from uh, the prophet, a man by the name of Isaiah. And Isaiah had many things to say about Jesus or about the Messiah, who was even nameless in his book, that would come in centuries from the time that he lived. Isaiah had lived hundreds of years prior to this, but he spoke of Jesus. He spoke of the work that he would do. And here's how Isaiah describes the Messiah that would come and how Matthew brings this to apply to Jesus. He quotes Isaiah saying this, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, this is God speaking, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him. He will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. That's an interesting phrase right there because uh, Matthew's writing to and Jesus is speaking primarily to Jews. This word Gentile simply means a non-Jew. And so he's going to come and he's going to proclaim these things to the Jews to the Gentiles. But verse 19, he will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. And so Jesus, as he comes in, what kind of demeanor does Jesus take on? Does Jesus take on a kingly demeanor to say, look, you all serve me and you all worship me and look at who I am and elevate himself? Well, the book of Mark tells us that the son of man, Jesus, didn't come to be served, but he came to, to serve. And so we see right here that Isaiah even spoke about the demeanor that the Messiah would have, where he wasn't one that was parading himself around, but even here to the point that he says, hey, you don't need to go tell everyone the things that are taking place. And there's more to that story. We'll get to it. We'll uncover it in a deeper way as we progress through the book of Matthew. But what else does he say here as he begins to address who Jesus can save? He says this in verse 20, a bruised reed, he will not break. A smoldering wick, he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Uh, Here's the metaphor that he's giving here. A bruised reed he will not break. Could you imagine, um, as a farmer, you go into a, uh, uh, let's say a cornfield. We've got corn in our neck of the woods, right? And so let's say you go into a cornfield, and um, this is prior to the corn growing and actually uh, bringing the fruit. Uh, Imagine going to a stalk, and a stalk has been broken over. Well, how good is that stalk going to be come harvest time? Is it going to bring this great harvest of corn? Well, no, it's, it's been broken, right? And so oftentimes, especially in this day, they're not uh, dealing with corn, often wheat um, that they're handling. And, and these stalks of wheat, they would break off before the fruit was born. Well, they're worthless now, right? And so they go through and, you know, tear them off. Maybe give the, chance, the, pl- uh, the plant a chance to grow again and something else to take the place. But, but here, what does Jesus say? It says, uh, what does he do with a bruised reed? Does he snap it off and say, oh, this thing is hopeless? No. What does he do with a, a wick that is burning down to the point, hey, this, is a, this wick, there's not a whole lot of life left in it. It feels empty and weak and like it's going to go out at any moment. Does he smolder it and say, all right, well, time for that to be done? This is a metaphor for how Jesus handles us. 
Because you and I, uh, throughout the Bible over and over again, you know what we get compared to? Sheep, <laughs> broken reeds, burned out wicks. We get all of these things apply to us. You see, the sin in our lives, it's, our, it's brokenness. We're bruised. We carry these things and, and the world, the, the situations that we live in, it bears witness to the fact um, that we're kind of messed up. Am I kind of messed up? I mean, really messed up. But how does, when Jesus enters into these situations, what does he do? Does he say, oh, you know what? God can't redeem this. God can't save this. God can't make this whole. No. He doesn't break it. He doesn't quench that flame. But instead, what does he do? You see, what did he just finish doing for all these people that were following after him? He healed them. He healed them. He made them whole again. You see, Jesus doesn't look at your brokenness and your sin and, and the things in your life that you or I would look at and say, well, this just disqualifies, and this means that God cannot do a thing. No, listen. God can use who he sees fit to use. And Jesus can save those who will be saved. And that's what we're going to continue to see as we walk through this passage. So we see Isaiah and we see him quoted even to the point where he says this, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And you have to understand that Isaiah, being a Jew, writing during the period of exile. So understanding that the Jews have now been displaced from and that are, they're about to go through this thing that, that it's going to look like these Gentiles are even more wicked than we thought they were in the first place. But he says, in his name, the Gentiles will hope. And can I say this this morning? This is one of the things I love about the scripture. You and I sitting here today, opening up this scripture, we are a fulfillment of this prophecy. Because you and I sitting in this room today, there may be a couple of us with some Jewish ancestry, but most of us would fall under the Gentile category. And if you're in here today and you hope in the name of Jesus, you are a part of the fulfillment of the prophecy of Isaiah that happened almost 3,000 years ago. Because he said the Messiah is going to come and he's not just going to stick to the Jews, but the Gentiles are going to begin to hope in his name. And so we should be grateful that this is part of who Jesus is and that the message of Jesus, the Messiah, isn't limited to one demographic of people. But it's spread about throughout the whole earth. And so we are part of what is taking place here. And so before we continue on, what I want you to understand this is that Jesus can and Jesus does bring fruit through your brokenness. Jesus can bring fruit through your brokenness. You see, you and I, we don't always understand how things are going to work out. In fact, um, if we're honest with ourselves, most of us, all of us, don't understand how things are going to work out, right? Who can, with perfect accuracy, predict what's going to take place tomorrow? Which of us? Well, none, right? But we're incapable of that. That's beyond you, and that's beyond me, and that's okay, because it's not beyond our God. But what we see is that here, as Jesus looks at this broken reed, as he looks at this thing that the others would condemn and say, hey, there's no value here. It has no worth. It is not worth hanging on to or holding on to. Jesus looks and says, oh, I can bring fruit out of that. I can work with that. I can heal that and make that whole because that's what Jesus does. 
And let me, let me help you understand this. If Jesus wasn't looking for broken people, none of us would be sitting here today. Because if you're new to our church, if this is your first time, your second time, your third time visiting with us here, you're our guest. We're glad that you're here. This is a church filled with broken people. Anyone object to that? (laughs) No, this is a church that will admit to that. I will admit to that. If this church were not filled with broken people, I would not belong here. Right? Thank you guys for not like amening too loud right there. (laughs) I felt it coming. I felt it coming. And you guys, thank you. Thank you. Uh, but it's true. If this church were filled with perfect people that never had that, that sin, that pain, that hurt, I would not belong within this church because I am a part of a sinful, sin-filled world. I experience that. You experience We all do. But as Jesus steps into our lives, he says, hey, listen, that sin, it's not the end of your story. There's still things that need to take place. There's still works that I can do even in the middle of, of this brokenness. But we see some stern words here first before he brings us full circle. Watch what he says in verse 22. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him. Okay. Can we all agree? Good thing. It's a good thing. A man who was demon oppressed, blind, mute, can't speak, can't see, come is brought to Jesus. And Jesus healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed. And they said this, watch, can this be the son of David? The son of David here is referring back to what we would call the Davidic covenant. David, the great king of Israel. God had promised that there would be a king who would sit on the throne of David forever. There would be one king that would fulfill this promise that God made to David. And so they began to look at each other and say, can this be the one that's come to fulfill this promise? Can this be the Messiah that God has finally sent to us? Is this possible that he is here? And watch what takes place. The Pharisees heard it. (laughs) You see that first word of verse 24. But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. This is the second time that Matthew records this accusation. He says, no, 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 no. He's not from God. It's by demons that he's casting out demons. The second time they bring this accusation to Jesus. So the first time wasn't enough. The refutation was not enough. The signs, the wonders that they saw afterwards were not enough. Uh, But what does Jesus say? How does Jesus respond to this? He responds to it this time a little more directly, actually much more directly. Verse 25, knowing their thoughts. I love that. Um, because they're speaking this among themselves. They're not going to Jesus and saying, Jesus, we think you're doing this by the prince of demons. Not this time. They did it once. They didn't want to do that again. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said this. Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. If Satan casts out Satan, he's divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it be by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And this is what they didn't like. This is what they wanted nothing to do with. 
is they wanted nothing to do with the idea that this could be from God, that these things were taking place. And so they already made up their mind that the devil was casting out the demons and that he was divided against himself. And so they said, hey, listen, it's, it's divided again. And then Jesus, I love how Jesus answers that. We, we read over it just really quickly, but he says, if I'm casting them out by demons, who are your sons casting them out by? And, uh, not demons. Got me there. So they don't even understand the accusations they're making. He says, listen, it doesn't make any sense. Why would the devil go against the devil? Why would he play against himself? Why would he go cast out others? And so he says, listen, your heart is such that you have to accuse me of this because if you don't, you have to say that I'm from God and you don't want to admit that because then that changes everything. Then that means you're wrong and you have to repent of that. And the Pharisees were good at a lot of things, but um, repenting, changing their mind, not one of them. And so what takes place? Jesus continues to speak. Watch what he says here in verse number 29. Or how can someone enter into a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then indeed he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the spirit will not be forgiven. Strong words from Jesus here. Strong words from Jesus here. And whoever speaks the word against the son of man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. And so Jesus goes as far as to say, he gives this story. He says, if you were to go and try to plunder a strong man's house, if you were to go into this and this man's a warrior and this man is uh, strong and he's able to overcome, he says, the first thing you'd have to do is worry about that individual, right? You wouldn't go in and say, hey, I'm going to rob this man without wondering where is he going to be? And so what he's doing is he's building a metaphor of he as the one coming in to plunder is coming into the place that Satan, that the devil occupies. He's saying, I'm coming into his territory. And why would I not be casting out demons before coming in and doing these things and reclaiming these individuals and these lives that are in need of the salvation that I'm bringing? And so he's giving this story, teaching this story to help give some understanding. And then he goes and he says this. Uh, he says that any sin can be forgiven except what he calls the blasphemy of the spirit. For us to understand what this is, we have to understand how the Holy Spirit of God works. See, the Holy Spirit of God, as we look at the Spirit's work, we see some, and we have to go to other scriptures to have a full understanding of this, but Jesus, in John chapter number 14, he speaks a lot of the Spirit that would one day come. And in that passage, he calls him the Comforter. And what he says in that passage is that he's going to bring all things to their remembrance, to their, their memories, concerning Jesus. Through the book of Acts, we see over and over again, we see the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit, the Spirit said, the Spirit did. We see the Spirit acting and working. And as we look at the Scriptures, we see that the Spirit of God is part of what we would call the Trinity. We have God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. But oftentimes we don't have a full understanding of what the Holy Spirit does. 
Oftentimes when we look at the Holy Spirit, what his role is, we don't fully understand and comprehend because Jesus, what we can see that's tangible, uh, God, okay, the Father, okay, we can understand that concept. And then when we talk about the Spirit of God, sometimes we have some misconceptions about what the Spirit of God does. And the primary role of the Spirit of God is to bear witness within our hearts of the truth of Scripture to draw us to Jesus. If I had to take all of it and encapsulate a complicated topic into a nutshell, it's to come to speak into our hearts to bear witness of the truth of Scripture, pointing us to Jesus Christ. So every time we see that the Spirit comes, the Spirit doesn't talk of himself. We don't see the Spirit of God ever inserting himself and saying, hey guys, you're not paying enough attention to me. We don't see that in the Holy Spirit. Every time the Holy Spirit enters the place, the people make a big deal about Jesus. Every time. You want to know if you're spirit-filled? Do you make a big deal about Jesus? Go through the book of Acts. Find a place that you don't see that taking place. When the Holy Spirit moves, Jesus is spoken big about. And so then what is a blasphemy against the Holy Spirit? So Jesus is coming and Jesus says, hey, listen, you can even reject me, which is kind of an interesting thing to say as he says, you can reject me, but you can't reject the Holy Spirit. That's, that's a step too far. What's taking place during this time, I believe from my study of the scriptures, that Jesus, as he's speaking, there are those who are skeptical of the message of Jesus from the external influence. There are times that you and I, we see something and we hear something from the outside and we have to say, do I really accept it, understand and believe that? We looked at it through, we look at it through a lens of skepticism, right? Um, we should. If you believe everything you hear, um, can we say you're a fool, right? We ought to look at things with some discernment. But there comes a time, especially when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the Holy Spirit takes hold of that and begins to testify inside of us that the things that we are hearing are true. And the Holy Spirit begins to move and speak. And now it's not just coming from externally, but our heart is beginning to bear witness and become a, a testimony of the work that Jesus Christ has done on our behalf. And I believe this is the distinction that Jesus is making. It says, you hear the truth, you hear one thing, and, and immediately you don't, yes, understand that oftentimes it takes dozens of times for people to hear the gospel of Jesus before they make a decision to follow after him. So just because the first time someone hears, it's not a rejection, but it takes time for the Holy Spirit to do his work. But understand this very seriously. I believe that by the time this has taken place, Jesus is speaking to those Pharisees and he's speaking to them sternly. Because by this point, the Holy Spirit's been doing work in their lives. They've seen, they've seen, they've heard from the scriptures. Their hearts have been convicted. This is not a day later. This is weeks, months, multiple instances interacting with Jesus later. And yet they're still coming at Jesus and saying, he's Beelzebul. He's a devil. Does Jesus condemn them the first time they say this? Well, he corrected them, right? But he doesn't begin to speak about blasphemy against the Spirit then, but now he does. When the Holy Spirit of God moves in our hearts and our lives to pursue Jesus, we must be quick to respond to that invitation. See, the Holy Spirit of God brings about and helps us to understand the truth of the gospel. And we reject that Holy Spirit that's coming from internal. What other witness are we going to turn to? When both the external and the internal are saying the same thing and drawing us to Christ and we're not willing to step out by faith and accept, 
what other hope is there for us? And so Jesus gives these very stern words, and then he continues in verse number 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers. What is he speaking of when he says vipers? It's not just snakes that we don't like, all right? Anyone in here love snakes? All right. All of three of you? Okay, you guys need to start a club somewhere else. Um, how many of you guys in here, snakes are just terrifying. You just like hate snakes. It's like top five fears. All right, super. Well, you guys won't believe what I have here today. I'm just, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, not, it's not that kind of church. <laughs> just say it. So he says brood of vipers. So this isn't like a garden snake, right? Like I can deal with the little garden snake and you're fine. It's, you know, I don't love it, but whatever. Vipers, they're venomous. Uh, that's why that's the distinction he's making. He says, you're spewing poison. You're bringing death. And so he says, you brood of vipers. How can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good. The evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified. And by your words, you will be condemned. And so in this, he begins to go into this analogy about a couple of different types of fruit. And Jesus says, even right now, as you are trying to condemn me, you are condemning yourself. Even now, as they're trying to condemn Jesus, this is what the Pharisees are doing. They're condemning themselves. Because why? What does he say? Look at the end of this paragraph. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give an account for what? Everything they intentionally say? For the things that they say in public. Is that what, is that what this verse says? For the things they say when they are around other people? No. For what? Every careless word they speak. For by your words, you will be justified, and by your words, you will be condemned. And understand this. When we speak ill of others, we reveal more about ourselves than we do about them. Every time. When we speak ill of others, we expose more about us than we do about that person. And I want you to hear that because I also want you to hear that when you hear others speaking ill, they're speaking of themselves in so many ways. Oftentimes, what we're going to see is the heart of that individual. Because we're going to be, listen, we're going to be judged by every idle word. I mean, that's a serious account. Every word that we say, even carelessly. And if you think the Bible doesn't care about the things that we say, just the things that we do, hey, listen, this is the word, these are the words of Jesus right here. And then I would encourage you, uh, when you're done reading this, go to the book of Proverbs and search for all the times that you see the words tongue, that you see mouth, that you see words. Because over and over and over again, the author of Proverbs writes and he speaks about the wisdom and the foolishness that's found within the tongue. Go to the book of James and see what James has to say about the words that we use and the words that we speak. And so here he's condemning the Pharisees, not based on their actions, but based on their words. He says, you, you're sitting over here talking amongst each other and you're deciding that I'm casting out by demons. 
Listen, God understands the words that we say and he knows them. And what do they reveal? They reveal what's inside of us. Because what does Jesus say? Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Out of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so if you want to examine and look and say, do I live a godly life? I would encourage you, look at the words that come out of your mouth. Look at the words that come out of your mouth. Don't start chalking up and saying, well, I attend church and I do this thing and I do that thing. And I look at the words that come out of your mouth. Because that's the criteria that Jesus is giving us here. And do those words justify you or do they condemn It's something that we have to seriously consider. Then we continue in this passage. Watch. Look at verse number 38. Jesus continues here. He speaks these hard words to the Pharisees. And then some of the scribes and the Pharisees, they answer Jesus. And they say this, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. And what does he say? Verse 39. Answer them. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. No sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the son of man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. And so here as he's speaking, he's speaking, what does he call this generation? He says it's an adulterous generation. These are words that are used throughout the minor prophets, including the book of uh, Jonah, to describe those who have turned away from God to serve idols or other gods. Uh, The term adultery was used as a metaphor for spiritual adultery. And so when he says, "You, you adulterous generation, he's not saying you're going around and you're having affairs left and right. He's saying you have left the God who did all of these things for you to serve other gods. Now, as he's speaking just to the Pharisees, the Pharisees are very strict, very strict. When the the scripture says no graven images, they don't have any kind of pictures, graven images, nothing like that that could ever be interpreted as a graven image or an idol. In their minds, they have followed this law to the letter. And yet Jesus is coming in and Jesus is saying, listen, you have taken those physical idols that your ancestors left and you haven't traded them for the true God. You've traded your physical idols for spiritual ones. You're adulterous in a totally different way. Just because there's not a shrine or a high place in your home that you go and you bow down to an idol doesn't mean that your heart is not filled with idolatry. And so he says, he says, listen, you're coming to me and you're begging for a sign. After, after everything you want a sign, he says, I'll give you a sign. That's the sign of the prophet Jonah. Just as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of the great fish. And here's what he says. Jonah went to Nineveh after this. If we remember the story from the book of Jonah, Jonah goes to Nineveh. And what does Nineveh do in response to the preached word of God? They repent. And this is Nineveh. Nineveh was the most wicked city on the planet. I mean, this place was, it was vile. It was corrupt. It was violent. And yet they repented. He says, in the day of judgment, Nineveh is going to stand up and Nineveh is going to condemn you. 
Because they responded to Jonah and I, Jesus, am a greater than Jonah. Jonah was shadow. He was looking forward to these things. I am the substance that Jonah was pointing to. And yet you're rejecting. And then he continues. And he says, not only that, he says, the queen of the south will rise up at judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And so this is a a story about uh, a woman, the queen of Sheba, who comes to Solomon back in the Old Testament. And Solomon, the great king of Israel, had so much wisdom that she heard of this wisdom. And she came to see Solomon and to hear his wisdom and to gain wisdom from him. And so she traveled all the way from her home to come and she went to see Solomon. And so he's saying this queen, she's also going to rise up and judge you. She traveled out of her way to come see Solomon. Here, I am right in front of you a greater than Solomon and you want nothing to do with me. And so he's speaking these things to a generation their hearts were just trading the physical idols for spiritual ones. Verse 43 continues, When the unclean spirit had gone out of the person, it passes through waterless place seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. When it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. So also it will be with this evil generation. And so he's speaking of this generation now that in many ways the demons have been cast out. Uh, they had once been this physically idolatrous generation and these, their ancestors had fallen into these sins and then God had allowed this exile and brought them back and the law had been restored and the temple rebuilt and these wonderful things had happened. And he says, hey, you know what the thing is? is uh, when these demons come back, they're worse than they were before. And so he's speaking of this generation in terms of these demons. He's saying, listen, your sin now is worse than your ancestors were because look where you are. You have the truth, you have the law, you have the temple, you have the prophets, and now you have the one who is coming in fulfillment of all of that, and you don't want to hear any of it. And so we look and we see in this passage, remember the theme of this passage, you say, well, Nate, that seems like we're a little bit off from the theme of this passage. (laughs) As we said, who can Jesus save? Well, you see, Jesus can save the broken reed. Jesus can save the, the wick that is ready to smolder and burn out. He can save those. But this also brings about who can Jesus not save? We see this generation that's filled with blasphemy. This generation that sees the truth, has handled the truth, has heard the truth. The spirit has borne witness of the truth within their hearts. And he says, hey, listen, Nineveh, wicked, broken, Sinful, doomed for destruction. The queen of the south, listen, far from God, not knowing, not understanding these things, and yet still seeks out Solomon. And now you're here, and there's a better than Solomon here, but you want nothing to do with him. And so we see those that embody unbelief, a rejection of the truth. Internally, externally, in every way, they have made up their minds that they do not want to hear what God is speaking to them about. And then Jesus turns the corner very sharply as Matthew finishes in this chapter. Watch what happens here. Verse 46. 
while he was still speaking. Okay, and so this is, there's no time gap here. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak with him. And so Jesus is teaching, Jesus is speaking, and he's saying, here's the thing, it's in the middle of these words that we would look at, and we say, wow, these are really harsh words, right? And he's not mincing anything. He says, and so now as he's speaking, a man comes in and says, hey, Jesus, your mother, your brothers, they're outside, they want to speak with you. And watch what Jesus does. He replied to the man who told him, who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And let me tell you what he's not doing here. He's not having amnesia, okay? Um, he's, not, he's not losing his mind. He, he's trying to make a point. He says, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? Stretching out his hand towards his disciples, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And so we ask this question, who is my mother? Who are my brothers? But this is not merely a question. What this also is, is this an invitation? Because here in these words, Jesus invites you and invites me to be a part of that family. He invites us to be a part of that healing. To step in to that metaphor of that reed that was broken, the wick that was smoldering, and he says, hey, you, you. You're my brother, my sisters, my mother. You are all of these things. How? How do we become this? Whoever does the will of my father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, now that leaves us with a question, doesn't it? It leaves us with a question. How do I do the will of the father? How do I do the will of the father? Do I have to go back to the 600 and law? I have to follow all of those? Is that how I? No. No, that's not, that's not what he's saying. Do I have to fulfill all of the Ten Commandments? And I have to do all the things that God has said and be better and be stronger and be smarter and, and be all of these things? That's not what he's saying. In fact, John chapter 1, I think, informs us very profoundly on this front. John writes this in verse number, verse number nine. It says, the true light gives light to everyone who's coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world didn't know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. You see that? To those who believed and received, he gave the right to become children of God. Well, if Jesus is the son of God, we are children of God. Where does that make us in relation to him? That makes us his, his brothers and his sisters. And so then how, how do we, how do we do that? How do we follow those who believed in his name? And watch this in verse number 13. Because if that wasn't evidence enough, watch what he says. Who are born, not of blood, so it's not, it has nothing to do with your DNA, your genetics, your genes, nor of the will of the flesh. Not because you were smart enough or strong enough or any of these things enough. Nor of the will of man, but of God. So how do we do the will of God? How do we fulfill the will of God? We believe. We believe. That's it. We follow in faith. 
what Jesus has already done for us. Because you see, even just a few moments ago, as we spoke of the prophet Jonah, he's speaking, and Jonah was known, if we say Jonah, Jonah and the... And for three days and three nights, Jonah in the belly of the whale, the great fish, Jesus says, that's the sign I'm going to give you. And he wasn't speaking of going to climb out into the sea and be swallowed by a fish. He said, no, I'm going to be in the heart of the earth. Because he knew that he was going to be crucified. Crucifixion, this execution that was made for the most vile offenders of the Roman law. Those who were insurrectionists and violent towards the Romans, that's, that's who got crucifixion. What was Jesus, any of those things? No. Why did he go to the cross? Well, he went to the cross because of your sin and mine. That brokenness that we talked about, that we all suffer from, that sin that pervades and invades each and every one of us. Yet Jesus came. And he says, you believe in me, you can be my brother's. My sisters, you can join me. You can be a part of my family. How? We believe on the work that Jesus Christ did for us. Not by trying to attain it on our own. Not by trying to keep all of the laws and do all of the good things. Listen, that's a fruit of our salvation. That's not what brings it about. What does? Turning to Jesus and saying, you alone can save me. You alone can do what I could not do for myself. And so who can Jesus save? Who can Jesus save? And here's the truth. Jesus can save anyone who wants to be saved. Jesus can save anyone who wants to be saved. Those Pharisees, could Jesus save the Pharisees? Did they want to be saved? No, they thought they were safe by themselves. No, don't worry about it, Jesus. I've got this. But Jesus can save anyone who wants it. As the Holy Spirit of God bears witness in our hearts, as the truth of the scripture shows us who Jesus is, we can be made right with God, freed from sin, given an eternal life, an eternal home with him because of what he did on the cross. We can be saved. So who can Jesus save? Anyone who wants to be saved. You can't commit a sin so great. He doesn't look at your past and say, oh no, you've, oh, you've done so many things. I can't forgive you. He doesn't look at you and say, oh, mm, if it weren't for that sin, oh, I know you want to be, but mm. you can save those who want to be saved. And so today, the invitation to you is this. The invitation to you is this. Do you want to be saved? Do you want to be a part of the family of God? Because as we speak and as we hear the truth of the word, the word of God bears witness in our hearts. The Holy Spirit convicts and brings about that we have to receive. We have to make a decision based on the things that we've heard. So right now, what we're going to do is I'm going to lead us in prayer. And we're going to step into a time that we call an invitation. And during that time, I invite everyone in here to respond to the word of God in one way or another. As God is working in your heart, as the word of God is working in your heart, respond. We're inviting you to respond to the truth of your word. Whether that means making a decision to trust Jesus as your Savior, whether that means taking the responsibility of going out to others with the truth of this gospel, or maybe it means we looked at the lifestyle of the Pharisees and we said, oh, you know what? That hit a little too close to home. And we decided to turn away from the things that they were modeling and instead follow after Jesus, the one who has gone before us.